Just when you thought this year couldn't get any nuttier, consider this. More companies have gone public in 2020 than at any time since the year 2000. It was a historic year when it comes to IPOs. We had the busiest year we've ever had in the history of the New York Stock Exchange. That was Stacy Cunningham, president of the NYSE. And when I suggested to one of today's guests that the fall has been a parade of companies going public, I was quickly corrected. It's more than a parade, it's a fiesta. And the, the tequila shots are flowing. And that's what we're talking about today here on Brainstorm. No, not tequila shots, sadly enough. We're talking about this adrenaline-pumping IPO market, fueled largely by tech stocks, and taking a look at venture capital markets. That's today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our lives. Hi, everyone. I'm Michal Avram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. Michal, I like that we're ending the year with shots. Although, I don't know about tequila after that one time in college, maybe vodka or something <laughs> uh, fruity. So not only are we seeing a record number of companies going public, but a huge number of them are doubling their stock price on the first day of trading. $70 billion and counting. That's the market value slapped on DoorDash in its opening minutes Wednesday as the stock made one of the biggest market debuts of 2020. Yesterday, DoorDash. Today, Airbnb. Just the latest examples of a lot of exuberance. And Airbnb's trading at 152 right now. They priced this thing at a 45 billion market cap. It's now at 90. Fidelity showing Airbnb as the most actively traded stock today with a very lopsided amount of buy orders relative to sell orders. Airbnb more than doubling in its debut yesterday and DoorDash up more than 80%. We should point out that the stocks of both DoorDash and Airbnb have correct a little bit after that first crazy day of trading. But the demand for these IPOs is still pretty impressive, especially with the economy, you know, not in a totally solid place right now. Yeah. And to that point, you've already heard from one of the people I spoke to for this episode at the top of the show, Liz Beyer. She's the founder and managing partner of Class V Group. She basically advises companies on their path to the public market. And she said that at the beginning of the year, there was no indication of this. Things seemed to be moving along at a pretty normal pace. Then, of course, COVID hit and everything stopped. Exactly. And what's interesting is what happened next. So then we roll into June and July and companies' businesses pick back up and those who thought they were going to be uh, severely harmed weren't. And so as we rolled into the summer, companies that originally thought they were going out in April said, you know, we can actually go out in the fall. So uh, we rolled into September and there was a rush of IPOs and the level of enthusiasm from investors, both institutional and retail, has been astonishing and perhaps indicative of a few too many tequila shots. Something else interesting about this year is that we've seen more and more companies taking different approaches to going public. Yeah, absolutely. And I spoke with Liz about two different methods that are gaining popularity. But before we dive into that, I feel like we should very quickly just remind our listeners how a traditional IPO works. Do you want to do the honors, Brian? Well, it would be my privilege, Michal. Typically, in the, in the old days, uh, like a year ago, Companies would file a bunch of paperwork, which they still have to do, and then they would have a roadshow 
where they'd go around and meet with uh, institutional investors and drum up interest in the company and the stock. And, you know, they'd show their financials and their projected results and get everybody excited. And the bankers would help them kind of suss out, you know, what the price would be. And then they'd set the price and it might get bumped up a little bit. And then they would offer shares to the public. And typically you get a, a bump in the price on day one. That seems to make everybody happy. The key is like whether you get a little bump and everybody's excited to own it or too big of a bump and, you know, maybe you left money on the table with the company. Yeah, Brian. Well, those were the old days. And the thing that people are getting riled up about now is something called a SPAC, which is really fun to say, but stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. This is basically a company whose sole purpose in existing in the world is to buy up another company that's privately held and take it public. So SPACs used to be a way for companies that were in I don't want to say questionable, but more challenging businesses to get public, whether it was online gambling, whether it was big opportunity for the medical cannabis companies, companies that weren't perhaps ideally suited for a primetime IPO could still go public by merging with a shell company that had a lot of cash. Early this year, some folks decided to raise, to start raising more specs, thinking, hey, maybe some of those companies that can't get out because of the pandemic will be ideal merger targets. And so some investors who traditionally wouldn't have gone near a spec said, well, maybe there's an opportunity here. And at the base of the companies, of the massive number of SPACs that we've seen is the truism that the folks who raise the SPACs, the sponsors, find them to be unbelievably lucrative. And of course, when some did it and when some high profile names like oh, Dragoneer and Bill Ackman and others did it, everybody jumped on board this gravy train. So if somebody came to me and said, would you like to invest in a shell company? I think my like red flag would go up. If I came to you and said, would you want to invest in a shell company? The whole sentence would be, would you want to invest in a shell company where I will pay you interest on your investment? I will give you a warrant in some unknown company. And if you get scared at any time, you can have all your money back and you still get to keep the interest and you still get to keep the warrant. Liz, where do I sign up? Seriously. Exactly. And that's why you see so many. It is a risk-free opportunity for some folks to put money in the marketplace in a shell company. Then when the shell company finds a target, they announce, hey, we're going to buy Open Door. We're going to buy Clover Health. We're going to buy whoever it is. And you get to say, oh, yeah, I want to keep my investment in that. Or, yeah, not so much. Why don't you give me my money back, my little piece of this company risk-free and the interest? That's why it happens. The SPAC attack strikes me as like a classic bit of Wall Street innovation. It's a great way to get investors to hand their money over and put it into the market. But what did Liz say was the main appeal for the companies? Why would a legit company want to go public this way? Well, first of all, I just want to repeat SPAC attack because that should be like the new Netflix show of 2020. But there is an appeal here, obviously, for companies that maybe uh, historically wouldn't have an easy pathway to going public. And you, you're seeing a lot of cannabis and online gambling and, you know, these kind of companies choosing to, to go the way of SPACs. But yes, there is potentially an appeal here for more and more, you know, quote unquote, legitimate companies. And and the big part of that appeal is that it's faster. You don't have to go through quite as much of, you know, the red tape and the roadshows and all that stuff that you mentioned earlier on, Brian. 
Okay, and what was the second non-traditional method that you and Liz talked about? Okay, so the second one is the hybrid auction model. Um, there's a, a, something called the Dutch auction model. This is a hybrid auction model. And basically, it is pricing the offering closer to market pricing uh, using a bidding process. And theoretically, this takes out at least some of the risk uh, of leaving money on the table that sometimes happens with a traditional IPO. So that that really big price pop on day one, again, theoretically speaking, you know, you're, you're mitigating some of that risk. Liz thinks that the auction model may be a good path forward for some companies because, again, they can hopefully avoid this. This is actually similar to a model that Google used when it went public back in 2004. And this is very cool. Liz was actually one of the key architects of that structure. Google is a business that that runs auctions for ads all day long, millions and millions and millions of auctions. And Google's founders, Sergey and Larry, couldn't figure out why they would sell the company any different way than they sold ads and thought, if we auction off our ads, why should we not auction off our stock? And so a group of us went to work on making that happen. And while there were some slip-ups in our process, most famously, we, to my knowledge, remain the only company that has a full Playboy article amended to its S1 because of, you know, a little error along the way. There were some mistakes, but the auction worked perfectly. The IPO price was $85. The opening price was $100. The closing price that day was $100. From a banker point of view, perfection is an IPO, at least at the time, that closes up 15%. So we were up 17.5%, close enough. And the reason you want the stock to pop a little bit is because all IPOs are riskier than companies that are already tested in the public markets. So investors need some compensation for taking the extra risk, and that's the risk-reward trade-off. So we were incredibly happy with how the pricing worked out, and the stock worked from there as well. And the biggest advantage of an auction is that the management team has a lot more data before they make the decisions. And the second element is that the management is going to pick the price of the IPO based on that data, and they're going to allocate the shares based on interest. And every investor puts that information in. So management, instead of knowing that the deal is 27 times oversubscribed, just knows where the demand is and knows that if they price at 40, these are the investors who will be in the book. And if they price at 42, well, they're going to lose this one and this one and this one. But, gee, they're going to get that extra money. What is the trade-off? So the biggest difference between an auction and a regular deal is the where the power lies and the pricing information ahead of picking the price. So Google felt that its IPO went off well, but the auction model didn't really catch on back then. For one thing, Liz said that the bankers hated it because they actually had much less control over the process. But then this year, the model has made a comeback. Unity was the first company in like 14 years to do an auction. And the question is, why? Unity's CFO is a woman named Kim Jabal. Kim and I had worked together at Google, and we knew that auctions worked. And Kim and I started talking about an auction structure. And then we went to their general counsel, a woman named Ruth Ann Keen, and brought her into the conversation. And we batted stuff around more and thought, you know what, we think this could really work. So we forged a path and everybody was nervous. 
we again could not have done it without the support of of the banks. You know, Credit Suisse was there from the start. Goldman came around as we got closer to actually going, so they were very helpful. But again, I think Kim and Ruth Ann and I feel pretty strongly that since investment banking hasn't been a stronghold for women changing things, we're pretty darn proud of the fact that we did this time. So anyway, we went through it. The deal worked. And the deal what the deal works means is the stock did not trade up dramatically. It traded up a little more than we would have liked to. We were hoping for 25%. We ended up a little more than 30%. But you know, that was still pretty darn good relative to others. And the second thing that was so important is that because of the way the company allocated shares to investors who it, where it understood their real demand, the stock did not change hands as rapidly as most IPOs do. That makes a lot of sense. But here's the thing. Didn't both DoorDash and Airbnb use some form of an auction model to go public? Because as we know, they both had opening days that were off the charts, like Airbnb priced at $68, which was above projection, and then shot up above $100. Yeah. I mean, this model did not work perfectly. It didn't work exactly as intended. It was supposed to give a better, more accurate read of investor demand and you know, I think part of the reason that it didn't go quite according to plan is because this year we've seen just off the charts demand. And especially for these kind of companies, this is not a, a, a usual year by any stretch of the imagination. And again, especially with companies that are, you know, digital natives and that are really innovators in their categories. I mean, Airbnb, yes, its business has been hit really hard by the pandemic, but it didn't have a lot of overhead like the hotel business did. And DoorDash, meanwhile, you know, we've seen just demand for for their service skyrocket throughout the pandemic. And so, yeah, there was a, a you know, larger than usual appetite for both companies here. That said, the fact that both did experience this pop in their stock price on day one did lead at least a couple of other tech companies, Affirm and Roblox, to back off of their planned IPOs, which they've now delayed. On the other end of this IPO mania are companies that are still in the funding stages. We thought it would be interesting to see how all of this enthusiasm in the capital markets looks to somebody in the venture world and what it may signal about venture capital as we go into 2021. I spoke to Emily Melton, managing partner of Threshold Ventures and one of the co-founders of All Raise, a group dedicated to channeling more investment dollars to women and founders of color. I think it's 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 more complex than just an IPO mania. I think if you really just look at what's happened in 2020, it's just a world of haves and have nots. And that the trends of technology have just accelerated to the point where companies are able to gain market share and grow more rapidly than we've ever seen throughout the decades of venture capital. But I've been in the venture industry for 20 plus years now. And I remember on the other side of 2000, kind of seeing the bubble crash, but a lot of those companies were just not They were ideas and they were betting on the future, but they weren't actually materializing in terms of the growth of the business. And that's just not what we're seeing now. You know, you see companies like Zoom, you see companies that are able to accelerate and drive real businesses capital efficiently at a scale we've never seen before. So I do think that the the stakes have gotten higher, but the scale and the size of the opportunities are also substantially larger and the market is trying to reconcile that. What do you make of the sort of the broader, uh, you know, enthusiasm for tech 
as you're saying, it's a have and have not world right now. And, and that's a big theme of 2020 overall for already public companies, the staying at home and everything that's happened this year has sort of given more momentum to digitally focused companies over their legacy competitors. To, to the haves and the have nots, I think there, there is, it, it, these trends were already in existence. So the foundation was there. What we saw was just, it's this accelerant, right? Where suddenly it wasn't a nice to have, but a must have to operate you know, kind of in the world that we had to, to exist in 2020. And so those companies that I think there was, they, there were real fundamental trends. Like we had bet on adoption of the cloud and I had bet on healthcare transformation. <laughs> um, and I saw Lavongo go public and I was there in 2019 and rang the bell and it was $3 billion. And a year and a quarter later, it sold for 18.5 billion. That wasn't, that was basically an acceleration of a trend over a couple of years that happened within a couple of months because the market required it. I do think for some companies, there was this moment, this existential moment where suddenly their trajectory just became exponential while other companies had to struggle to figure out a way to survive. So to drill down on that a little bit, as we look back at the pandemic, there was a spike in the fortunes of companies that were made for this moment. But as we translate you know, going forward into 2021, were there big shifts in how the venture community is thinking about investing or other trends that you see coming out of this year that are going to really impact the venture investing world? I think there's two ways to answer that question, and they both kind of feed on each other. One of them is about the venture industry itself and how the venture industry has transformed in reaction to what you've seen, not only in the last year, but I think it was, again, an accelerant of you know, this movement to the haves and the have-nots and the amount of value that these venture companies can create. And then there's the underlying technology trends in terms of where people are spending their dollars and where you think you're going to get, continue to see those outsized returns. So on the first point, the venture industry has really been transformed in the last five to six years. Um, you know, when I started in 2000, most of the venture funds were around the same size. That's transform. Mm. You've seen a mega scaling of venture capital in terms of some of the best players in venture, raising billions of dollars and investing across different stages and sectors, as well as having new entrants and continuing to see new entrants move in, uh, where you're having hedge funds you know, play a role, where you're having new family offices that are backing new entities. I think that there are, we're now in a new world where there's going to be large platform venture capital funds, and then some very kind of focused, oftentimes strategic or with a very specific industry-focused firms. And they're going to play together in this ecosystem. But I think that the maturing of venture capital, we're no longer this little niche market. <laughs> the returns and capital has figured out that this is where you know the game is being played and where the returns are going to be found. And there honestly aren't a lot of other places to put it. So I do think the venture capital industry over the next decade is going to look very different than it did in the early you know, 2000s. So that's that's one thing. And then there's where you actually focus. And are there trends that you've seen in 2020 that we think are going to continue into 2021? Um, yes, I do think that collaboration, remote work, while you know, we do all hope that we are going to see, continue to see you know, people being able to get back to some sort of normalcy. I do think that there is going to be there are going to be much more companies that are operating in a hybrid environment. Of my portfolio companies, half of them have given up their lease hmm. this year. And so I think a lot of them are trying to think how you could be a remote first or a hybrid environment and really drive productivity. So I think a lot of the that flows with a lot of the technology, both on the application level as well as on the infrastructure side. And I think that's going to be a critical component. I just think that, that consumers have come to expect that and businesses have come to operate that way. Another area where I spend a lot of my focus is in healthcare. 
And I do think that the transformation, you know, for every crisis, there's an opportunity and healthcare has historically moved extremely slow. But what you saw with this crisis where suddenly people are realizing it's okay to see your doctor over Zoom. And by the way, we can do a lot of this stuff over the telephone. And there are tools that we can give consumers to be able to monitor their health and empower them to take more control over their health. I think both the industry has realized that that's going to be required, but more importantly, consumers have come to experience it and expect it. So I'm very bullish on that as a long-term trend. I wanted to also ask you about another trend we've seen this year, which is women founders receiving less VC money. I know you're a founder of All Raise, so I'm curious to hear your take on what's happening there. The good news is, is that in 2019, we had, you know, there's a lot of progress that ha- that had been made and had been made since All Raise's founding. And in 2019, it was a record-setting year for female founders. So $20 billion of capital was raised across, you know, 20, about, almost 2,700 companies. Female founders still only represented... 13% of all capital. So while that's great, and it's way up from where it was 5 or 6% just a couple of years before, you, know, you can still see that there's a long way to go before you actually have parity. The other thing is to our earlier discussion about the haves and the have-nots, a number of those dollars end up getting highly concentrated in just a few deals. The challenge is, is looking at this year and trying to understand what's going on in 2020. Um, and PitchBook came out with some data that showed that for the first year, we've actually decreased in terms of the number of dollars going into female founders. And so it was down 31% in 2020. And I think it's it's too early to dissect all of the reasons for that, right? I, I think there's some... There's been a lot of articles written about, you know, what how women are stepping out of the workforce or taking disparate roles in the home, managing the kids. And so maybe some female founders that would have sought capital this year have delayed it or put it off because they just had too many challenges. The other thing is, is in an environment where you are working remotely, the networks have to be pre-existing. It's really hard to have serendipity or to reach outside and develop new networks over a transactional platform like Zoom. So one of the things that we're trying to be very cognizant of, how do we make sure that our deal pipeline is actually still allowing us to reach you know, second and third degree connections and not just find the people that we already know? Because if we're just operating, particularly if you have an industry that's still 90% male, if they're just operating in their own networks, which are primarily male, you're going to have a vicious psycho where mostly males get founded and uh, funded. So I, I do think that there's that there's a lot of things we're going to have to look back on 2020 and ensure that we don't make the same mistakes in 2021 um, so we can continue on the right trajectory. And that's a great segue into our final interview of the day with our colleague, senior writer Maria Aspen. She just wrote a feature story for the magazine called Female Founders Under Fire. So in the past year or so, we've seen several high-profile women running venture-backed startups step back or be forced out of their companies. Some of the most notable examples are Audrey Gelman, the CEO and co-founder of The Wing, Steph Corey, the CEO and co-founder of Away, Ty Haney, the CEO and co-founder of Outdoor Voices. And there are several more examples. And as each of these women has stepped back, usually amid employee complaints of mistreatment or mismanagement, which have been reported in the press, there's been a mounting narrative that female founders are under fire, that they're subject to harsher scrutiny by both the press and employees, and that they have, uh, as several women told me, a target on their backs. We decided to take a closer look at that argument and all of the reasons that it's being made, all of the factors that go into the double standard facing female founders. 
Another angle that you explored, I thought really, really smartly, and it's a really interesting part of this whole story, is that maybe a disproportionate number of these female founders who've come under scrutiny are leading consumer-facing companies and lifestyle brands, and there's more pressure on the women who are the founders and the and the leaders to be identified with the brand in a sort of public way. In both the case of Audrey Gelman and Ty Haney at Outdoor Voices, they announced their pregnancies on morning TV shows and talked about, you know, how it was so great that as a young woman, you, you could run a business and have a baby and have it all. And that creates, especially when their brands were promising sort of a a sisterhood, a feminist utopia, a, a more feminist inclusive mission, and then they they failed to live up to that or their companies failed to live up to that, that creates a greater sense of betrayal than if you're like a guy selling B2B software and your employees don't like working for you, but you've never promised this better workplace utopia. You've never promised an inclusive feminist space um, and your employees have have less to um, to criticize you for because you just didn't promise them as much. So um, there's that. And there's also several of the women I talked to just said that to even get in the door with investors, to even get your pitch taken seriously, um, you had to, you as a woman have to be, have to be willing to turn yourself into a brand because that's what has succeeded before. And so that's what they expect now. Yeah, I think one of the things I, I loved about your story, Maria, is how nuanced it was because it is it's a complicated thing that's going on here. And I think you also looked at the long term implications um, or potential implications to, to this scrutiny, whether it's, you know, right or wrong. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what those implications are. I mean, as we head into 2021, what are the numbers tell us about funding for female founders in 2020 and what do you anticipate we'll see in 2021? And does what you're talking about have an impact here? Yes, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that came up with all of the people I talked to, and I spoke to more than 25 founders, executives, investors, and startup employees. And they all pointed out that the scrutiny of female founders is such a problem because there are so few of them. Um, the numbers for female founders who get VC are just really abysmal, as as you guys know. There are four percent of the unicorn startups that are that are valued at a billion dollars or more are run by female CEOs. Women only teams last year received. 2.6% of all venture funding. And in the third quarter of this year, we saw that number plummet, um, largely due to the pandemic. But it's there's really this tale of two types of startups going on or tale of two genders going on because um, we're seeing this frenzy of funding and IPOs in the tech universe for, for most startups. But we're seeing female founders and female CEOs sort of fall off a cliff. Most of the people I spoke to pointed out that it's it's largely because um, most of the people who get VC are men. Therefore, in a time of crisis, when investors are just looking for known quantities, they're going to invest again in either companies they've already invested in or in the guys who have proven to be, according to pattern matching, who most look like what they think 
successful investments are like. But there's a fear um, among several people who I talked to that investors are already retreating from female founded companies because of the economic recession, because of the pandemic, because things just seem riskier. And this string of very high profile female founders stepping down is going to reinforce the prejudice among investors that that women are just riskier bets. You know, what strikes me, Brian, is that even as we're having all these conversations about this increasing appetite for taking uh, risk and and innovating on the different paths to the public market. You know, it's unfortunate that that doesn't translate to also taking risks and making bets on entrepreneurs that maybe don't fit the same mold as they have in the past, you know, specifically women, people of color, of course. Um, and that, in fact, uh, when it comes to investing in female founders, we're seeing a bit of a regression there. Yeah, and Emily talked about the haves and have-nots in terms of companies, and we still have too much of a divide, as you say, in who gets access to funding. So I think one thing that we can look forward to in 2021 and hope is true is that we get back on the path towards more inclusivity from the VC world and that you know, with all this demand for tech, that VCs find new voices and new entrepreneurs who don't have access to this capital. Yeah, I think that we can add this to a very long list of things that we hope will improve in 2021. So that is it for today. But before we sign off, Michal and I have one request. If you're enjoying Brainstorm, take a minute to rate and review us. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, what are you waiting for? Thanks for listening. We're taking a break for the holidays. I hope you are as well, but we'll be back in January with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is written by Megan Arnold and edited by Nicole Vergawa. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. <laughs>